The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We're here together and we gather together on Good Friday. Strange, isn't it? Ironic that we would come this morning and say that we are celebrating Good Friday fully aware that what we're commemorating this morning is the brutal execution of the founder of our faith. We need to know this morning that in Jesus' time, by the time he walked the planet, over 30,000 men in Palestine had already been crucified by the Romans. And so... What makes this one crucifixion out of 30,000 so special? I think we understand intuitively this morning that there must be more than just an innocent man suffering an unjust death. And it can be confusing, and and certainly we come and we, we look for answers on why we say Good Friday. But I think the best thing that we can do is hear the words of our Savior this morning. On the night that he was betrayed, he quoted several times from the Old Testament. And it's amazing that he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53. If you're not familiar with Isaiah this morning, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet. He wrote about 700 years before Christ. And in Isaiah, we have what we call the servant songs. There are about five portions in Isaiah that we acknowledge today clearly have to do with the Messiah, the coming one, the the Lord's servant, and we identify him as Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to look at this servant song, starting at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and working our way through Isaiah 53, 12. And the reason I do that this morning is because in this short passage of Scripture is the most detailed and specific account of the design, the purpose, and significance of the death of Christ and his his resurrection. If you have your Bibles this morning, take take them and look at Isaiah chapter 52, if you would, this morning. If you don't have your Bible, feel free to look on the wall behind me as we work our way through this. And what I'd like to do this morning is is there's there's really five segments here. They're, They're lumped together describing the servant of the Lord. And we'll work our way quickly through the first four, and by quickly, I mean quickly. We're going to move our way through. And by the fifth, we'll stop. And in and, 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 and the fifth, I hope to convey to you and to myself this morning why it is that we can say that this is a good Friday. And more importantly than that, why God the Father is pleased with what happened on this day. Familiar with Isaiah or the servant songs, I want you to listen carefully, but I want you to keep in mind as we read this, it will become more and more clear to you that who we're speaking of is Jesus Christ. And so here's the first segment. We find it in Isaiah 52, starting at verse number 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This first portion is talking about the servant of the Lord. And it's shocking. It's shocking. Not because he said he would be exalted, 
every Jew realized that the coming Messiah would someday be exalted. He would be the king. He would rule and reign. Uh, He would free them from bondage. They looked for him, and it was no wonder that Isaiah said he would be exalted. That's not the shock. The shock comes in the next verse. He says, As many were astonished at thee, his visage or his appearance was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And why this is so shocking is because for the Jew to think of their king, to say, wait a minute, this is the Lord's servant, this is our deliverer, this is our king, why is it that now he is, he is brutally abused to the point where we don't recognize his face to be a man's? And they're shocked by this. He concludes this first section in verse 15 by saying, So shall shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which hath not been told them shall they see, and that which they have not heard shall they consider. And so Isaiah says, listen, in, in the midst of your shock, understand this, that the mission of God's servant would be accomplished. He would fulfill exactly what he was called to do. So the first segment is that of shock. They're shocked by the servant. Here's the second, Isaiah 53. And here now we see this servant spurned. He's rejected. Isaiah says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And when Isaiah says his report or his message, it would have been his message about the coming one. He said, Who's going to believe what we're saying? that he would come out of Judah, that he would be born in an insignificant town in Bethlehem, that this one, our king, would minister and serve the poor and the needy, and that he would die, according to Isaiah, and rise again. Who would believe that report? And Isaiah says, very few. The report is spurned. It's rejected. But not only that, the person is rejected. Verse number 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And so here is this servant now. And he comes And he doesn't come as they expect him to come. And so they want nothing to do with him. He is rejected. Not only the message, but now God's servant is rejected. This is not what we envisioned him to be. So he's rejected. Here's the third segment. The king, this servant now, is a substitute. Verse 4. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And what they're saying here is as we we view this one who you said is the promised one, it looks as if God is smiting him. Maybe he did something wrong, because what he is facing is unjust. It seems as if he is smitten by God himself. He goes on in verse number 5. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And God says, wait a minute, I want you to know something. I am the one who is striking him. I am the one who is chastising him. I am the one who is piercing him. I am the one that is wounding him. And I am doing that for you and for me. This servant will be a substitute. He will bear what you and I deserve. And this is amazing in verse number 6 because Isaiah sort of sums up the real reason we all need a substitute. All we like sheep have gone astray. I'm not a farmer or a rancher or a shepherd of literal sheep. But I am told that sheep stay together in a flock. And it's not like one goes a mile down the road, the other heads off here, the other goes another direction. They stay together as a flock. And Isaiah says, all we like sheep, all of us have gone astray. And what he's saying there is for all of us this morning, we are sinners by nature. By nature. Like a flock of sheep. We all move in the wrong direction. We all rebel against God. We all have our own way. We all say, this man will not rule over us. We are sinners by nature. And then this is interesting, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And then he says, we have turned everyone to his own way. We are sinners by nature. And we are sinners by choice. And given a choice, we have a propensity always to go the wrong way. Always to believe the devil's lie. Always to think that God is holding good from us. And we can't trust him. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. And so, Isaiah says, that's because, because of that, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by choice. There's a price to pay for the sin. And God says, my servant, this one coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be your substitute. He will die in your place. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity. Of us all. The next section in Isaiah 53 is that now of his submission to this. As this is happening to God's servant, look what happens in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Again, I'm not. Um, a lamb guy. We have a family in our church that they actually raise lambs. And you can correct me later if you'd like to. But I am told that when lambs are sheared, when they're fleeced, even if they're nicked or scratched, they do not protest. They do not open their mouths. And the Bible says about this servant, when he is treated unjustly, he doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't protest. This is not fair. Yet, it says, he was taken, verse number 9, from prison and from judgment. A hasty mock trial. Even those who accused him couldn't get their story straight between themselves. Pilate says, I've examined this man. I find no fault in him. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Verse 9, and he made his grave with the wicked. And, and, and I don't know that 
when this is, I'm sure when this is written, the people who read Isaiah's prophecy 700 years before Christ had no idea of the significance of this verse when he says, and he made his grave with the wicked. The word wicked there is plural. It's plural. He says of this servant, he will make his grave with the wicked. And we know already he was crucified between two thieves. And then he says, and with the rich in his death. Rich there is singular. One man, Joseph of Arimathea, let him borrow a tomb for just three days. And again, it just shows the precision of the word of God. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah says, this is what will happen. And he will submit to this treatment. He finishes off verse number 9 by saying, because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now we come to the last section, the section that explains why God himself is satisfied with this day. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And it's a strange statement. It pleased the Lord to bruise or to crush him. And it's not a sadistic kind of, ooh, I want to see you suffer. I like pain. But in the crushing, in the bruising, in the pouring down of God's holy wrath on the head of Christ, the great story of redemption is accomplished. And so God says, in the midst of this horror, it pleased the Lord to crush him. He goes on. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The one who is cut off shall still prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall, be, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, because of this, Will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And listen to me, just so that you know the end of the story. Because of this, because of this act, the Bible says that God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And today, he owns every square inch of the universe because of what he has done for us and for his God. It's a good thing. And now we come to verse 12. He says in the middle of that, why will, why will he be given this, this great position? Because. And now Isaiah will give us the four reasons why not only we say Good Friday, but why God says, Good Friday. He says, first, he poured out his soul unto death. God says, this day is good because Christ poured out his soul unto death. He gave his life for another. Just the thought of that, isn't it noble that one would give up their life for someone else? Those who are um, literature buffs, I guess, you, you would remember the tale of two cities by Dickens, 
great, great story. It takes place during the French Revolution. And there are two main characters. The one is Sidney Carton. He is a washed-up, drunk lawyer who is full of self-pity and remorse because he's wasted his life. But he's brilliant. And the other character is Charles Arnay. He comes from the French background of, of nobility. And he's a man of integrity and virtue. He's a good man. And in a twist of fate, Carton, the washed-up lawyer, is in the, in the courtroom in England when Darnay is being brought to trial. It, it was a capital punishment. And it looked as if he would be found guilty, and he wasn't. And Carton steps up as, as one of the um, assistants to the main lawyer and says, wait a minute, because he has this, this, this crazy identical appearance to Darnay. They look identical. He says, you're going to convict this man because you said you saw him there, but look at me. How do you know it wasn't me? And they were so close to looking like each other that Darnay was um, excused. He was found innocent. During the story, um, Carton, the washed-up, wasted-life lawyer, is in love, a strong love, an unrequited love for Lucy. But she marries Darnay. But he loves her. And he sort of hates Darnay because he is everything that he never was and wanted to be. And toward the end of the book, Darnay goes back to France. He is tried and set to be executed the next day. And Carton, the wasted lawyer, devises a plan to go there to drug um, Darnay to change clothes with him and let him escape. And as he is being marched up to the chopping block, he envisions Lucy and Darnay driving away to safety in England, having a family, raising them, enjoying life together. And he says by the end of his life, um, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It's a great story. You should read it sometime. It's amazing. And what God is saying is, better than Carton giving his life for Darnay, my son, the perfect, spotless, Lamb of God gave his life. It was poured out for you. And that's exactly what he's talking about in Romans chapter 5. Look there, if you would, on the screen. It should come up. For while we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Peradventure for a good man, some would dare to die. Can I tell you something? There are a lot of people in this church I love. I really love. This is a good place. But on my willing to die for, I got a short list. Honest. There are four. Sorry, Dad. I'm just telling you. It's like, yeah, he lived a good life. Let him go. Let him go. But here's the amazing thing. Verse number 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The innocent, and when I say innocent, the perfect, spotless lamb of God stepped into my place. He poured out his soul unto death for me. And God says, It's good. It's good. Back in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, he goes on and gives us a second reason. He says, 
and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, we already know that in his death, he was numbered with the transgressors. They purposely put Christ on a, on a middle cross with two thieves on either side to say to everyone who passed by, this man must be a horrible criminal. If he's in the middle of this mess, he must be identified with transgressors, with evildoers, with the lawless one. But I want you to know something. Not only was Christ identified with transgressors in his death, he was identified with transgressors in his life. The Pharisees come to him and they say, you're a friend of publicans and sinners. As a mark of disdain. And Jesus wears that badge as a badge of honor. That he is a friend of sinners. We get calls at the church quite often for help. And you've got to be careful because after years of having people call the church, you can become cynical and jaded. And you, and you really have to be careful because, believe it or not, there are some bad people in the world and dishonest people and scammers. And they have a system where they'll come and they'll, they'll ask for money and they'll give you a sob story and later you find out none of the story was true. And so it happens quite often. And several weeks ago, I was in the office by myself. The phone rang and a woman on the other line said, Hello, I said, Maple City Baptist Church. She said, does your church help people? No, click. <laughs> I didn't do that. The, the sad thing is some of you people thought I did do that, and I, I didn't do that. And I said, what's your story? What's your story? And I'm thinking, here it goes. And she said, I have more month than check. You've been there, right? And she said, I have a lot of non-perishable items, but I need just five perishable items. So that intrigues me, right? Five things. I said, go on. What are the five items that you need? She said, I need bologna, number one. But not any bologna. She said, blue bonnet bologna. Now, I didn't know what blue bonnet bologna was, but I found out later it's Schneider's bologna. Okay, it's blue bonnet bologna. I said, okay. I need rye bread, okay? I need eggs, okay? I need Swiss cheese, okay? And what's number five? I need pudding. Now, I believe, I don't mock pudding. I think pudding is a substantial thing in life that you actually do need. So it's okay. She said, I can pay the church back. I can give a donation. I said, it's all right. Where do you live? I'll pick up some groceries. And when I come, I'll just leave them at the door. She said, I'm, I'm in an apartment complex, and I'm handicapped. I can buzz you in. So it's fine. Pick up the groceries. I drove into this, um, this apartment complex. I've not been there for years. Years. And, and this, as I drove in, it was one of those spring days that we have once in a while here, right? We're not celebrating winter. And so I, I drove in, and, and people were out and about. And, and I know this is judgmental, but I'm going to say it anyways. As I saw the people coming in and out of the building, milling around by the cars, sitting outside the steps, I said out loud in my car, this place is really rough. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, some of you, you know, you live there. It's rough. It's like, man, this, this is really rough. And then, by God's grace, in a split second, the Spirit of God spoke to me, and I said out loud the second time, and this is exactly where Jesus Christ would be hanging out. 
You're not hanging with the self-righteous in their suits. He's whipping those guys. And I'm serious. He is a friend of sinners. And God says, I'm pleased with that. And the thing about him is he's perfect and he doesn't become soiled by sinners. It's not like he's perfect and he touches me and he's unclean. It doesn't work that way. He's perfect and he touches me and I become clean. It's a great thing. And God says, this is good because he has been identified and numbered with the transgressors. Number three, and he bear the sin of many. We, we have a problem in our society. I think we would all admit this morning, yeah, we sin. A little white lie, you know, I, I'm, I fudge a little bit on the truth there. I looked a little bit too long here. I acknowledge I have sin, and it's bad. You know, it's doing something God told me not to do or not doing something he told me to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, God, just forgive me. And, that, and that's our attitude. Just forgive me. But what we fail to realize is when forgiveness is involved, someone has to absorb the cost of forgiveness. Nothing's free in life. If I said this morning, hey, afterwards, we have free donuts and coffee for you after the service. We don't. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. We don't. We don't. I'm, we don't. But if I said that and you went back there, you would not have paid a dime. But can I tell you something? It wasn't free. Somebody paid for it. If you smash into my car and I say, it's okay, I forgive you, and you walk away without paying anything, I have to absorb the cost of that through premiums or insurance or myself. Someone always absorbs the cost. This morning, we are sinners by nature, we are sinners by choice, and the wages of sin is death. And someone will absorb the cost. It will be you, it will be me, or it will be somebody else, but someone will absorb the cost. In Israel, during the time of the tabernacle in the temple, in Leviticus 16, we, we hear of the two goats there. One came before the high priest and was sacrificed immediately. The other was the scapegoat. And the scapegoat would come, and the high priest would symbolically pray over that goat, laying his hands on the goat, and confessing all of the sins of the people on the goat. And then the goat was led out into the wilderness to die. And as that goat left the city, every Jew watching that would have emblazoned in their mind, somehow, way, my sin is transferred to that goat, and he is taking my sin. He is removing my sin from me. It's called the goat of removal. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. And God said, there is a debt that you owe that you cannot pay. But my son will pay a debt he did not owe. And God says, it is good. It is good. And here's the last thing he says in Isaiah chapter 12. 
Why is this day good? Because this servant has made intercession for the transgressors. You know what an intercessor is? It's someone who goes between. There's an offended party here, and there's a party here, and what happens is the intercessor comes in and he says, what do you have to say? What do you have to say? Let's work this thing out. And now because of what happened on Calvary and the resurrection, we now have a mediator, the only mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And what he does is this. He goes before the Father and he says, yes, that one is mine. And he is guilty. He is full of sin. He cannot obey your law. It's impossible. And he is doomed. But he's come to me. And so, Father, please take my righteousness, because I've obeyed your law, and give me his sin, and make him righteous. And he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He is an intercessor. He goes between. And God says, it is good. Something interesting about that made and made intercession, it's continual. It's a continual action. It means it doesn't stop. It means that As Hebrews 7 says, he ever liveth to make intercession for us, for you, for me. As God's children today, we have one who goes before and he pleads our cause. This is a good church with good people. It is. And we had a rough go last week and we had lots of our folks praying for us and we were so thankful for that. And you understand that when people intercede for you, it is a blessing. And we are grateful, and you'll never know the gratitude. But at four in the morning when you wake up and your mind spirals out of control, and it's dark and it's heavy, and you don't know what's going to happen, and you're facing the unknown, it's nice to think people are praying for you, but let me tell you something better than that. We have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who knows, who sees, who understands, and who holds us and takes our request before the Father. This is our God. And this is why we come today and we shudder at the horror. You should read over Isaiah 52 and 53 again. You should go into the Gospel accounts, look at the resurrection this weekend as we prepare for Easter. It is unbelievable, the agony of Christ. And we don't glory in that. It humbles us. But we can glory because God said, this is good. Because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. We call him our brother of all things. He bare the sins of many and made intercession. So this morning, we can leave this place saying, it is good. It is good because we have a Savior. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.